this morning our kind of little pocketed look at the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 this morning. Boys and girls, make sure you have your uh, children's bulletin there. You have a place you can ask questions. You have your own translation in there as well. We'll be referring to that, so you want to have that. And again, if you ask Pastor Sean a question, that's great. I will answer those, but you've got to let me know who you are or I don't know who to answer. <clears throat> and so for the rest of you, if you would, would you please either open up your apps or you can look in your bulletin or open your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And as you're getting there, I want to kind of start out with the concept that many of us are familiar with of living in a fishbowl. It's this idea of because of what you do or because of who you are, you're kind of scrutinized for just about everything. And what it does is it creates kind of pressure to perform to a certain standard, to, to live a fake life because everybody's watching, so you've got, you got to always be on guard. And there's no peace in that kind of life. There's no joy in that kind of life. There's just too much pressure in that kind of life. And unfortunately... Many people think that's what it means to be a Christian. You know, always wear this happy, moral, good person mask. Make sure you are good and, and a decent citizen and make sure you perform the right way. And passages such as the one we're going to look at in a few moments are actually ones that sometimes are used for justification for that junk. When really what this passage is going to show us is that such a performance mentality in the church is a product of fear. It's not the product of a robust relationship with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you remember where we've been, it's been a couple weeks. Last time we were in chapter 2, and we kind of asked the question, how do we deal with a semi-hostile culture? How do we deal with a culture that's starting to kind of turn and not be too sure if it likes having the church in it. And we saw that the answer from God's word was that we actually submit to those authorities and then we serve that culture. And in so doing, God silences them. That's the promise of God to his people. And that matters that we get that because the church has real enemies. There are people out there who do not like the fact that we profess faith in Christ. There are people out there who just don't like Christians. And they slander, and they tell lies, and they even do evil to Christians. And so this text today is about a more personal sort of persecution, a more personal sort of pressure, situations where people are scrutinizing us, and looking for an opportunity to attack Jesus through us. So with that in mind, let's go together to God's Word now. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. This is God's Word. <clears throat> now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good 
if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, as we come before your Word this morning, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. And we do ask, Lord, that you would send your Spirit to open this text up to us, and even open us up to this text. May we, Father, submit to your word, grow from your word, receive truth for our transformation. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to see here today is that we don't fear what people say about us. Because if we're rooted in Christ, the one who died and was raised for us, we will then know that God blesses us. That's what Peter tells us here. So we could kind of sum that up into one sentence. Maybe you can write this down and talk about it over lunch. Here's what we're going to talk about today. When we realize our foundation is totally unfair, we are freed from fear. That sounds a little like, huh, what? Yeah, when we realize our foundation is totally unfair, we are freed from fear. See, what I want you to see today is that the church is actually a fear-exempt people who stand firm because we have an unfair advantage. Let's go through this together. We're a fear-exempt people. Peter is talking about persecution here. In his book of 1 Peter, this is the most blatant he gets about persecution. He's really wanting them to understand this. And this is an individual, relational-type persecution. And so he begins with a rhetorical question, kind of pointing to a bigger picture of opposition and persecution. He basically asks them there in verse 13, Look, who is the one behind any harm towards Christians when those Christians are zealous for good? Who is the one behind that? And the answer, of course, is Satan and his forces. Now, many of you just cringed a little bit. Because, you know, we're Presbyterians. We don't talk about Satan. We talk about our, the evil inside of us. We, we, we kind of leave that to the Pentecostals and the Baptists. We talk about our sin, our flesh, our dark hearts. And those of you who are not really Christians who are here, you know, the idea of Satan in general is like, what? I mean, the idea of an actual, real, spiritual entity, that's kind of whack out, isn't it? That's... that's, that's, that's cuckoo banana stuff. I know. I know. I get it. See, we we need to recognize that that kind of tension is part of the change in our culture. We need to recognize that, you know, what we're doing right now is not Pastor Sean giving you some nice Presbyterian thoughts on some things. We're going through a passage from God's authoritative word, and we are submitting to it, not submitting it to our thoughts. And so sometimes it challenges us with things like, don't you really understand what's going on See, God's Word makes it very clear. Satan hates Jesus. But he could not stop Jesus. And so he goes after what Jesus loves. Or who Jesus loves. His bride. The church. Us. And so, the sort of pressure and relational opposition we endure because we are Christians is actually Satan trying to hurt Jesus through us. Do you want to know that your life matters? 
Do you want to do something exciting or significant with your life? Well, this is it, actually. When we experience opposition for our faith, we are right in the middle of Satan's warfare against Jesus. But we miss that. Because we are so afraid of standing out, of speaking up, of being thought weird, right? But here's courage right here. Opposition means that we are doing something significant. So much so that Satan takes notice and wants to stop it. That's a big deal. So Peter wants him to see that, and so he wants to strengthen their resolve in this matter with verse 14. I want to look at a kind of literal translation of verse 14 together. It says this, it says, look, even if y'all are suffering because of righteousness, that's a blessing. Do not fear their fears, nor be troubled. You see, our Lord knows that life is scary, but he says right here, don't be afraid of what they are afraid of. God's people are actually exempt from those fears. Don't fear their fears. You're exempt from those fears. Why? Because He blesses us in those things. Now, that's kind of weird and ethereal. What, what does He talk about? Nikki and I have a very dear friend. She's an, she's an older lady from us, and we've known her for years and years. And she's definitely been a mentor to Nikki. She's definitely been a mentor to me. And I remember about probably, gosh, 11 years ago now, we were sitting with her, and we were part of a different church, and we were talking about a, a fellow Christian couple we knew that had lost a very, very late-term baby. And we were just expressing how we don't know how they can handle that. We don't know how they're going through that. and They seem to be holding it up so well. We just don't think we have the strength. We were just in awe of how well they're doing that. And this very wise, godly woman sat back, and she goes, You don't get the dead baby grace until you get the dead baby. What if the thing you're really afraid of is meant to be the vehicle of God's blessing in your life? That's what he's talking about here. We don't fear those things. Because even though they're not good and we don't seek them, those are actually the ways that God brings grace into our life to deal with them. That's why he tells us, don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Facing and working through that fear is the key to blessing in the Christian life. We may, probably will, suffer a little for our faith. Nothing like in other countries. Let's not demean their suffering by calling what we experience real persecution. But we do experience pressure. We do experience things that our, our, our parents and grandparents didn't have to face. But we can face it confidently because God says it will be a blessing. We can really be fear-exempt in Christ. And so here is now where I'm supposed to challenge you to get out there and do better. Face your fears because God's Word says so. So get out there and try harder not to be afraid. But that's not what Pastor Peter says here. and That's not what Scripture does anywhere. You see, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible... It's not a rule book whose message is try harder. It's a book about Jesus. And so when the Bible challenges us, it challenges us not to try harder, but to look more profoundly at Jesus instead of our circumstances or ourselves or whatever it is. And that's what Scripture does here. To live in this fear-exempt freedom 
It doesn't tell us to try harder. Instead, it says you must have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ to be fear-exempt. Look with me, if you will, at verses 15 and 16. It says this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, the secret to a fear-exempt life is literally, we could translate that part, elevate Christ as Lord in your hearts. You want to be fear-exempt? Elevate Christ. See, instead of the fear, we look to Christ. We elevate Him as Lord. Instead of giving worship service, or what's the word for giving worship service to something? We fear it, right? You've heard the phrase, a God-fearing person. Instead of fearing this thing, no we elevate Christ. And in the fear of Him, we're exempt from this fear. We give Him the highest position in our hearts. And when we do that, we have a different foundation. We have a profound hope. And others will want to know about it, is what this verse tells us. And that sounds so cool, but this verse doesn't sound that cool. It doesn't sound like it's saying that. It actually sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? I mean, the idea of what? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I, I, I can't have that. I, I'm not a professional. I can't have this reason. That, what if they ask me a question I can't handle? What, I, I, I'm just going to say nothing. I'm just going to stay silent. Because I'm scared. You see, this verse sounds very intimidating. And as much as I like the ESV, I've got to say it really misses the sense of the Greek text here. And so what I want to do, I want to look at the kids' translation of verse 15, and I want to look at another alternate translation, try to get us what is the Lord saying to us in this verse. Here's how we did it for the kids. We worship Jesus above everything else, and we are ready to tell others why we live in hope instead of fear. Doesn't that sound a lot better than be prepared always to make a defense? Or here's, here's, a, here's a really rigid translation. It's good Greek but bad English. It says this, ever ready with an answer for all those craving from you the reason for the hope in you. You see, it's not about having some slick, memorized, list, apologetic thing. No. It's about living in hope. Why? Notice what it says there. In the, in the literal Greek, it says those craving from you. See, the text assumes there's going to be some sort of thirst or craving for the hope. They're going to see this hope you have and they're going to want that. And they're going to ask you about that. This is not, make sure you can quote Van Til and then Voss and memorize 37 scriptures with their addresses in three translations so they ask you the question, you better be ready. Or baby Jesus is upset or something. No. This is live in hope. And in that hope, people are going to crave it. Why are you so hopeful? Isn't that a much easier question to answer? This means yes. Okay, so make sure you're tracking with me. You see, we have a completely different foundation. They live out of fear. Christians live out of hope. And they want to know how to get some. That's what he's telling us here. See, pressure, even persecution, what he's telling us is an opportunity for witness. Our hope is firm because it's not sentiment. It's not a, a knowledge of certain facts either. Instead, our hope is what? We rest 
our heart's devotion on the elevated Jesus Christ. We have elevated Him in our hearts. We serve Him and in that we have hope. You realize that the hope of Christians messed up the ancient pagan world. There wasn't really one unified view in the ancient Roman and Greek world of of life after death. The majority opinion was you kind of just stopped. Life was all there was. Once you stopped, once you died, you died. Some of them believed in the idea of Hades, which was kind of a more from the Greek culture, a misty, ethereal, wispy place of the dead. And you weren't exactly happy there, but that's kind of all they had. And then here come these crazy Christians And they just kept trying to kill them, and they just kept popping up no matter what they did. And they had this crazy idea that because their founder, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead, so too they would be raised from the dead, and they would live with their Creator forever. And it made them so hopeful that people just could not get over it. And it destroyed that majority view of nothing happens after death. And it kind of absorbed that idea of Hades and came up with the medieval idea of hell, which we see in Dante's Inferno, which is not scripture, but most of you think of as hell. And it created Western culture. But now as Western culture is kind of throwing off its Christian beginnings and kind of reverting back to that paganism, there's this huge question mark in our culture of what happens after death? Do do we just cease to exist? Is, Is this all there is? If that's true, does does anything we do actually matter? What difference does does living make if death just destroys everything we accomplish? I mean, for such huge questions, the answer and answers our culture offers have no hope. See, but we do. We have hope. And that hope is what we give a reason for. We don't have to have a complicated answer for all the skeptics. Christians defend their faith by proclaiming the gospel. That's it. We defend the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how do we defend it? By declaring it. That's it. I hope you are grounded in such a gospel hope. Because we need that firm foundation for the other challenge that we faced. Verse 16 tells us that we are going to be slandered. It says when, not if. When you are slandered, it is going to happen. People are going to think poorly of us because we're Christians. They are going to tell lies about us because we're Christians. And that's scary. But it's also so liberating. Here's what I mean. How much effort do we put into making sure people think well of us or that they say nice things about us? How preoccupied are we with that? A lot. But see, once we get the win, we say, oh, they're going to slander and lie about me anyway. I'm free from trying to impress them. I don't have to do that. I just let that energy go. I can live in the security of Jesus Christ, and then I can love these slanderous neighbors anyway instead of trying to manipulate and impress them so they'll think good things about me. Because they're not. See, the slander's going to happen. If we recognize that, we can live in this hope and this joy. Because here's the key. We can't be a hypocrite about gospel hope. We must have a demonstrated hope in our life. 
Because people are going to try to poke holes in our faith. They are going to watch us. They are going to look at us differently. We do live in a fishbowl because we're Christians. And we are going to fall short. We will often live out of fear rather than hope. And we need to own those failures and repent of those failures. Sometimes to the people slandering us. They say, you know what, you're right, I did that. I'm sorry. See, and then part of our defense is then to ask the slanderer, what do you do when you fail to live up to whatever ideal you have for your life? What do you, how do you deal with the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment when you don't live up to the standards you've set yourself? Because I have my Lord Jesus Christ who has died and made me new and he has taken on my guilt, he's taken on my shame, he's forgiven me and made me his own. And so even though I fail, he forgives me and gives me new power. And so I'm free from this, I can move forward. What do you have to get rid of your guilt and shame and embarrassment? See, especially shame. Peter talks about shame here in verse 16 because shame is a significant thing. See, when I, hear, when I say the word shame, you hear the emotion embarrassment. That's not biblically what shame is. Shame is a status. In the ancient Near East, shame was something that got you kicked out of the community. You were then adrift. You were separated from the community because you had done something wrong. You were shamed. People did not talk to you. They wouldn't work with you. They wouldn't give you food. They wouldn't give you hospitality until you were restored through some sort of ceremony, some sort of personal sacrifice, you had to do something to take this burden of shame off of yourself to be restored. It wasn't an emotion. It's a status. And that's what happens in our culture. People see our failures. They slander us for our failures. But they see that we can fail and repent and still have hope. And all of a sudden, it makes them question the foundation of their life. They see their life is messed up, and they see, I can't recover from my shame as much as they can. What do they have? And it causes them to ask, to be ashamed, and to say, what's, what's going on? And this is the moment that we can share the reason for the hope that we live in. We can say, well, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I was already a sinner, and it was while I was evil, it was while I was rebellious that Jesus Christ placed his love on me and made me his own, that his heavenly Father adopted me, and so now his dad is my dad because of what Jesus has done. While I was already evil, he made me clean, he declares me clean, and he says, now go forward and live clean, and when you fail in 37 minutes, because I already know about it, I've already forgiven you, move on. Would you like to know more about that? Because it's a great way to get rid of shame. And sometimes, amazing, this, this person who just slandered you will look at you and say, uh-huh. And sometimes they won't. But that's okay. Because we Christians have this amazing, firm foundation of hope because we have an unfair advantage. Verse 17 tells us that there is more advantage to us in suffering for Jesus than for evil because God wills it, God blesses it. Here's kind of what Peter's saying. Look, we endure a fine for speeding. We may grumble about it, but we were wrong, we broke the law, we got caught, we suffer for it, we deal with it. It's okay because it's fair. 
But God's Word tells us that it's actually more advantageous to us when we suffer for doing good, when we suffer when it's unfair. I want to make sure you're tracking with me, so let's all look at the kids' translation of verse 17. Boys and girls, let's pull yours out. Make sure you're, you're following along. It's been a, make sure you're not drifting off now. Okay, let's look at this together. If bad things are going to happen to us, it really is better if they happen because we were doing good. Now, boys and girls, y'all get this. And you're more prone to actually say it out loud, even though mom and dad are thinking it right now. That's not fair. To suffer for doing good is just not fair. Suffering for doing good is not fair. And the reason we think that is because we all, by default, fall into a religious works mindset. I do good in life, I get good out of life. I do bad in life, I get bad. Or with religious language, I do good, that makes God happy, so he gives me happy. I do bad, uh uh-oh, God's mad, so I get bad. That's how we view our world. And we say what? That's fair. And so try hard, right? Be a good person, do better, try harder to get a good life. And if we see someone who doesn't have a good life, oh, they probably messed up somewhere. That's why we go to church. That's why we volunteer. That's why we give money, right? So we can deserve a good life. Oh, and Jesus is in there somewhere, right? See, but here's the thing. People living a fear-exempt life have a firm foundation in the hope of the gospel. We live in hope in suffering because we're free from all that stuff because we know we have an unfair advantage. We have hope because it's not fair. We can handle the unfair out there because we recognize that grace is fundamentally unfair. That's right, I said it. Grace is unfair. Our redemption is rooted in God being unfair. Jesus didn't deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ never earned those wages. It was not fair for him to be put to death for the sins of his people. Christians don't deserve forgiveness. It's not fair that we're forgiven. It's not fair that Jesus, instead of us, suffered for our sins. See, but the gracious, loving heart of our God overflows with kindness for us. And so He sent Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Such graciousness, such love to those who don't deserve it is not fair. That's why it's called grace. We can't be good enough to earn it. It must be given as a gift. And that grace, that love, gives us hope over fear. It gives us hope to talk about, hope to live in. Do you know Jesus like that? Are you grounded in that kind of hope? That's what Peter's saying here. When the pressure comes, when the slander comes, are you rooted in the real hope of the real gospel? Are you trying to impress God with your behavior and it just doesn't work? You can have this hope in Jesus Christ. Simply, just everything you've grown up thinking about Christianity in the church, just take it and just throw it away. I'm serious, just throw it away. Everything you think you know about Christianity, punt it. And simply... 
place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to make you right with God. That's it. Not your behavior, not your church attendance, not your good works. I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's all I've got. And he will give you hope. And if, you've, if you know you've done that, dear Christian here today, I want you to look at this table. This table is where we participate in the unfairness of our redemption. Where we taste the pungent juice that makes us think of Christ's blood, or we chew that chewy, weird recipe bread because it's supposed to make us think of flesh, and so we recognize it is unfair that my Lord died for me. And so we worship Him even more through this meal. This is where we come to celebrate the death of Christ on our behalf. And it gives us hope. And in that hope, we're fear-exempt. You can have this. Look to Christ and have hope. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father,